Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is Jim Shupak. In December of 2016, Jim began his journey towards earning his doctorate in education. Then in September of last year, he completed his his journey and is now an EDD pursuing educational leadership roles. After his personal aha moment running a marathon, he now dedicates his marathons to promote mental health awareness and to promote a local pet rescue. Furthermore, he runs to support sponsorship through Unbound, which is an organization in Kansas City that helps the impoverished throughout the world. Jim's goal is to save as many lives as he can to eradicate the stigma of mental illness. We're honored that Jim has shared some of his time with us today. How are you doing today, Jim? Doing very well. Thank you for having me on, Tim. Absolutely. I'm glad you're here. Oh, thank you. A fellow Pennsylvanian. Yes. <laughs> always, always nice. Oh, it's for sure. Good people. So, it sounds as though you went through a little anxious experience that can be very disrupting to someone. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got here today and take your time? Sure. Um, really, if, if we were at yesterday, the 28th of February, I'd be saying it was 20 years ago this month. So it was 20 years, like 20 years ago in February, 2001, like I had uh, started to have a lot of the symptoms of clinical depression, but I didn't know that I had clinical depression. So to say it was a scary place to be would be an understatement. Like it's, you know, basically living inside my own head and, um, you know, to it, it, like anything could trigger me. I could get very angry. I, I just wanted to sleep. Um, I essentially lived for the day to be over cause I just wanted to get back to bed. Um, so a lot of things like that, like I had no real interest in doing anything. I would just lay kind of in, on my sofa, um, not much really going on. But that being said, so, you know, a month became two months, became three months. And then um, eventually a friend of mine who unfortunately has passed away, he had a heart attack, actually, Wendell Frederick, who's named Gufford, is all good guy. But he had, um, he had depression himself. And he had, I remember him reaching out. He's like, Jim, are you okay? And I was like, I don't know, man. I was like, I'm just not feeling myself, you know? And he's like, well, I've noticed over the last couple months that you've been kind of not acting yourself. And um, he said, you know, he had depression. And he said, I want you to look this up. Like, can you look up this, you know, depression? Because I think you might have it. And again, I'm living with it in my own brain. 
like every second, Tim, seems like a minute. Every minute seems like an hour. Every hour seems like a day. Every day seems like, like, it's just the never ending day. Like, and I was willing to look up any information that might give me a, a, an involvement, you know, like some sort of information because on, you know, you have suicidal thoughts, you have this and, and I'm like, I, I just want to get better. I just want to get better. I wound up looking it up and here I am looking at every single symptom, Tim, and I had every one. Now I wound up looking at another website, another, I'm like, wait, can this be right? Like, wait, wow. Like, so to say it was one of the happier moments of my life, it's, it was because I didn't know that how I felt had a name. So now that it has a name, I know that I can get help for that name, for whatever that is that's ailing me, you know? So at that point in time, um, I was youth leader at my church at that point in time. I wound up reaching out to my doctor who ironically enough, her kids were part of the youth group, but I was, I was kind of, um, I, I want to say embarrassed. Like there was a stigma that, you know, unfortunately still exists with mental mental health, mental illness, that, um, so I, she was the, uh, also one of the doctors at the local university, East Stroudsburg University, where I was a student. So I, you know, emailed her and I said, hey, can I meet with you? I, I really need to talk to you about something. I'm, you know, I, but I'd rather do it at the university, blah, blah, blah. And she was, yeah, no problem. So we set up an appointment and she gave me the, uh, you know, the, I told her, I, I printed out papers and I was like, I think this is what I have. I have every, you know, so I almost diagnosed myself, but I needed her diagnosis, official diagnosis. And she gave me the depression test. And she's like, yeah, Jim, it looks like you do have this. Um, and then we set up a plan, like a plan of attack. And um, so she put me on Paxil, which I still take to this day because I still have some anxiety. And um, I don't do so well in the uh, winter. Like, I, I think it's more like seasonal affective disorder because this, there's no sun and what have you. But that being said, I saw in Paxil, she suggested I go to talk therapy. So I did that for about three or four months, weekly, biweekly. And it started to help. Like it, I, I started to feel more myself again. But then I started to read up about exercise. And what I mean by exercise is like, could have been walking across, like around the block, you know, and, and I couldn't do that at first. I couldn't get out of bed. So here I am, I'm like, I'm starting to feel stronger, more confident. You know, I, I know I have clinical depression, anxiety. Um, you know, at home, we had, we had a dog um, who honestly was my angel and fur through this too, because he, he's very sensitive, you know, and we have three dogs as well, one who's laying on my lap right now. So, I mean, he, you know, at, he's a chihuahua, they're all chihuahuas. So if you're wondering, but still, that being said, that's actually, here, buddy, you say hi. <laughs> there he is. So sorry about that. He, he needs his moment. I apologize. But either way. But, and they're very good for, for anxiety, for depression, what have you. But Sonny, who's a golden, you know, he, would, he, he could sense when I was feeling down. And, you know, as much as he is, I would be taking him for a walk, it was more him saying, hey, I need, I, I need, I know that I need to take you, meaning me, for a walk. So I, he, he could sense that. So I wound up taking him out for, but I would always feel better. Before you know it, Tim, I'm, I'm doing, um, you know, I get this like little endorphin rush. I'm like, wow, that felt really good being outside and just walking around. And a walk became like two walks around the block, which became walking for a mile, which became walking for two miles. Then, then a slow jog, we'll call it, or a speed walk. You know, we'll call it that. Like, I'm not fast by any means. And before you know, I was training for a 5K. Finished the 5K, felt real good about myself. 
And uh, what I'm about to tell you is more of a do as I say, not as I do thing, Tim, because uh, I went straight from doing a 5K to a marathon, which is 42K. <laughs> so the, the traditional way of doing is 5K, 10K, half marathon, full marathon. But I think for me, it was just more my way of telling depression that I control you, you don't control me. Mm. And by running and, or speed walking or, or slow running, we'll call it that, I'm the guy at the back of the race. We'll just put it that way. You see those last 30 people finishing a marathon, I'm one of them. Okay? So at the same time, I finished you know, my first marathon up in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, Steamtown Marathon. I'd be lying if I said that I almost didn't like do number two on the start line because I was like so you know, scared the whole nine yards. But I had friends who were supporting me throughout. And it was nice because I was like, I need to get to that next friend. And then I finished. So before you know it, I, um, once the, the pain went away, the lactic acid, I decided to do number two because it was such a fulfilling thing. And before you realized it, like I had this moment where I said, well, why don't I train to get those hundred days back of that I lost when I was depressed, you know, clinically depressed. And I didn't know how I felt, had a name. So my long-term goal is to get a hundred. I'm at 21 right now. And, um, you know, right before I finished, I started my doctoral studies in uh, 2016. Um, in that spring, I did four marathons in four months. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I did three in three months in 2014. And I haven't done any over the last four years just because the, the program I was involved at Drexel University in, in Philadelphia, we'll just say it was very intense, very sure. intense. Like, so it, you know, could I do exercise? Yes. Could I walk? Yes. Could I train for a race that's 26 miles? No, not even close. So that's kind of where I'm at, you know, and, and like you said, like just finishing the doctorate, that was always a goal of mine, you know, and I've had other experiences just doing service work that have kind of grounded me both here in the U S and uh, abroad, like in Central America, being a Spanish teacher, I'm able to talk to people in their native language. So it's not like, Hey, ask him this or ask her. No, just like we're talking now, Tim, it was, you know, really getting to know the people. And it was just so humbling. Um, you know, even uh, meeting someone who was my age, I'm going for my master's and he himself had never set foot in a classroom. Mm -hmm. I mean, never even gone to kindergarten. So it was, you know, very, very humbling, very, it gave me perspective. And I think that's what's even helped me through depression and through seeing, is this a first world problem or a third world problem? Because if it's a first world problem, it's not really a problem, you know? So that's kind of really helped me throughout. It's funny that you mentioned your dog. I, I had a golden doodle uh, when I was going through the throes of my depression. And she was so smart just like you said. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I took suicide too seriously and had the butcher knife in my hand at my wrist. And, and I looked at my dog and I said, you know, I don't want my dog to be alone. I don't want her to yeah. get killed, go to the pound, whatever. And that's really what would help me, you know, out of that one particular issue. So they can be very valuable. Oh, without a doubt. Like I call them angels in fur. I mean, like yeah. even I have a cat who too, as well, who, uh, they're not as, I don't want to say as needy baby per se. Like they more like doing their own thing. So if there's times I just need my space, if I lay upstairs, she'll kind of lay right next to me. And I know like, it's almost like yeah. a comfort blanket, but yeah, with the dogs, even the one I just showed you snitchy, he who's laying on my lap now, 
when I was defending my dissertation, Tim, he knew I was, my anxiety was through the wall. Like, and he, he came up to me like this. He knew I needed, he, that he needed to be with me. He sat laid on my lap. 90% of my anxiety was gone. Like from that moment and for my entire defense, the whole bit, but it was almost like he sensed like that I needed him. And I mean, they're just awesome. I could, we could speak the whole program about dogs. You know what I mean? That's how much I love them. That's great. So let me ask you, um, in your educational experiences, how do you describe your style? What's the, what's the central message that you try to get across? Like to students, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Really to be good people, to like to treat other people with kindness. Like people say, you know, like, yes, I am a Spanish teacher, but at the same time, I'm a teacher of young men and women, like who are 12 and 13 years old. And that's a very, um, that's an age that's very, how would I put it? They're going through a lot in their life with puberty, what have you. There might be bullying going on. There might be, you know, some of them are going through depression and through, because of the, the chemical imbalance, because of puberty and other things that are going on. So for me, it's just a matter of them being receptive, of them just being kind. And I think, like, they, you know, it, there's this, there, one of the teachers in my school has this great thing that I, um, like a, a quote, and it says, you know, if you see someone that doesn't have a friend, be one be one to that kid because you never know what that kid's going through. You never know like where they're at at their, their life. You don't know what's going on at home. And, you know, even for me as a teacher, I see myself, yes, I'm a teacher, but in some cases I'm, I'm a father figure or I'm an uncle figure, or I'm just a friend to a certain degree, someone that a kid, maybe they don't have that figure at home. And it's somebody that they could come up to me and ask, Hey, if you have a question, you can ask, you know, like I'm, very, I consider myself very approachable. So that's the thing, but really just be kind to one another, be, you know, and, and lift each other up. Yep. So in those experience, what's been the most challenging aspect for you? Um, you don't know what's going on at home. I, I'm only with these kids. Well, really for 45 minutes out of the school day, but even if I see them through the school day, it's, you know, we're, together about six hours ish six six and a half hours so the rest of the time the other 18 hours where are they what are they doing you hope they're at home you hope that the parent or guardian is giving them a you know support but i don't know that you know i don't know so when they're under my my care per se or in my class i try to you know have a very um i even like to call it trauma-informed teaching where i'm assuming all the kids in there or any of the kids could have had some sort of trauma, not saying that I, that my expectation of them is any less, just saying that I'm not a yeller. I mean, I've been teaching 14 years and I swear to you, Tim, I think I've maybe yelled three times in my entire teaching career. It's just not who I am. And this, and it, honestly, those, those three times were probably in my first five or six years because I was still getting into finding myself as a teacher. Sure. So it, you know, really in the last I don't know, maybe eight years. I can't recall ever yelling. Like it might be like, you know, it, it might be stern, but at the same time, not yelling. And cause who knows what the kids are going on, you know, what's going on at home. So that's, that's really one of the big challenges I see is, you know, I see what the kid is in front of me, but I don't know what's going on in their life specifically, unless they tell me, or unless maybe uh, a guidance counselor, or another teacher tells me. And conversely, what's, can you remember or recall one of the 
experiences that was the most gratifying for you? Um, as a teacher? Yeah. Well, I'm not, like, I've, I've had a couple, and, and it actually, one of them I'll, I'll speak to, um, that really is gratifying is I had spoken about, you know, my bout with depression, what have you, and I had um, one of the administrators come back to me eventually and say, hey, I just want to tell you something that, you know, so-and-so just told me that he talked to his dad, that he had been feeling a lot the way that you had been feeling. He was nervous to talk to his dad, but when he did, his dad was so receptive and he wished he would have told him sooner, but he's like, I just want to thank you for talking about that because of that. He was willing to, to talk to his dad. So for me, that was, that was a very humbling experience because I know that me just speaking out, you know, did something um, to maybe have that bridge of conversation, maybe just give that student the, uh, the idea of having that conversation. So that definitely would be a, a big one for me. Great, great. So how, how would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show you love, discuss feelings oh, and emotions? Um, no, my dad's awesome. Like he, now I will say this, he's a, a Ukrainian, Eastern European, not that he was born there. He was born in Schuylkill County, Pottsville, Pennsylvania. So he's, um, you know, so he has that Eastern European that, you know, what have you, but, um, as far as, oh yeah, I always showed love. Oh, but he was very, um, firm, but fair, especially when we were growing up, once we got to be a you know, high school, once we got to college, he kind of took the reins off where it's like, I've given you the tools, you know, now it's your job to use those tools and use them correctly. Now it's like, I'm friends. Like we're not, it's not like, I mean, yes, I'm his son. I'm always be son, but it's almost like we're friends. Like, you know, he's a good friend. Like, but I think we have that relationship because of those first 18 years when I was going through, you know, high school, middle school, if I acted out or I did whatever, because I knew, oh gosh, if I got in trouble in school, you did not, oh, it was not going to be a pleasant experience. <laughs> the punishment I got at school would be nothing compared to the punishment I got at home. Just, you know, whatever, I can't do this, I can't do that, or, you know, but he did that with love. It, was, it wasn't like anything emotionally abusive. It wasn't physically abusive. It was just, he wanted me to be raised the right way. And, you know, thankfully he's still here. He's still three miles away from where I am. And my mom is too. So, yeah. Um, like emotions, my mom was more the one who talked more about that. She was more the, you know, the emotional one, the one like if I needed someone to, you know, to cry to or to talk to real, like, and I could talk to my dad, but my mom, I kind of gravitated more toward her. All right. So let's, let's go back a second. You talked about 20 years ago when you were sitting on the couch and you just didn't feel right. And maybe you thought you had depression. Maybe there was something else. You didn't know what was going on. What, what uh, you told, you told us about, you had a friend who kind of helped you to ask for help. But before that, what prevented you from asking for help? Really? I think just, I was, Okay, so really what it was, I was living in my own head. 
and basically seeing what I've seen on TV. Like, are they going to put me in a straitjacket? Am I going to go to the psych ward? Am I like, I didn't know. I think the uncertainty of what is going to happen by having this conversation that was, you know, kind of delayed me. And, you know, if it, like, I wasn't sure what it was. So it's these, I'm already, you know, having anxiety. So it's like making a mountain out of a molehill almost. So I, you know, is it this, is it this, could it be this, could it be the other? And before you know it, I'm, I've created something probably, well, not that really there's much that in my mind is far worse than depression, anxiety, but there, you know, it, like it's 10 times worse. And it's, you know, so I think that was part of that, you know, um, that's what I would say. So did it ever occur to you when you were in that state before you reached out for help that yesterday's and today's masculinity norms, like the egotistical macho man, the good old boys network, the ego driven guy may have prevented you from asking for help sooner for fear as being labeled, not a real man. I think so. I think a little bit like, I think really like maybe in the past, I felt like, I should be able to get through this. I should be able, but I, I didn't know what it was, but at the same time, yeah, I, I think so. Like I wasn't as big on maybe saying how I felt just for fear of embarrassment, you know? And now, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm in a good spot with it. Like both of us are, you know, like I, you know, talk about my mental health, like we talk about the weather, but at the same time, yeah, at that point in time, definitely not. It was, I was more, afraid of what others would think of me really and now i'm like i could care less this is who i am take me or leave me if you don't like me that's your problem i'm 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 happy with who i am i know i'm helping people and that's what i want to do you stole my line that's what i yeah. say right? yes yeah. after i got straightened out and got some help now i feel like i'm on the path of being my authentic self yeah and I don't care what other people think or say. It doesn't bother me. I, I, I know what's right. I'm coming from yeah. a good place. Yeah. Must be the Pennsylvanian inside. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I think it's the 18 inches of snow and the 18 below yeah. zero weather. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not kidding. You are yeah. not kidding. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and I should say something too, Tim, I, as well. Um, the thing with the depression too, I want to bring to your point and, and to the listeners is, I also have a, um, a seizure disorder mm. and I had my first epileptic seizure. I'm the only one in the family. I was the chosen one. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> Could have been because of, uh, you know, going through puberty because I had my first seizure at age 13. So that's right around the time where, you know, and um, it actually should have killed me. Honestly, if I'm being very blunt, very honest, my brother was there. Thank God I was turning blue. Oh. And so my dad, you know, he picked me up and put me on the bed. We called the uh, 911, you know, and fortunately all was well, you know, I, but I've been taking medicine for it ever since. So I've had three uh, ground mal seizures since, but not, mm. or two since that one, but not in Knockwood 25 years. So as long as I take the medicine, the Depakote, Valpark acid, I'm good. Well, in talking to my neurologist, I had told him, I said, could that have caused this? And he said, yeah, there could, there could be a um could be a cause and effect he's not 100 percent sure but he said there's already some sort of chemical imbalance that exists so that could have been part of the trigger 
So I, I do want to make sure to mention that too, Tim, because that is, um, I, do I know if that's the case? No, only God knows if that's the case. But is it possible? Yes, it is. You know, that's why I say, you know, that we all get an annual physical checkup. Yeah. And I say, well, if we get a physical checkup, why don't we get a mental checkup every year? Mm-hmm. Mental health True. care. And I think it's just as important, if not more. Yeah. Because yeah. of the cause and effect, what you just said. So yeah. now when I grew up, I I was a victim of abuse, physical, emotional, mental. And that I found out was the root of my severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring, as well as my addictions that thank God I've overcome. Now you said there wasn't much abuse in your family no no abuse yeah but you, you you talked about that you acted out i don't know what that means but um usually when you know depression or mental health goes unchecked that's when people turn to alcoholism uh, drugs pills violence whatever so tell us about your acting out career well um, that's really, it would be if someone looked at me wrong, if somebody would sneeze, if, if I would think that someone was thinking something about, it might just be me yelling. It might be me like pounding the wall. And again, like 20 years, like that's not, I'm not like that at all. Like, but at that point in time, that was almost, almost like a coping mechanism. If, you know, not, not a necessarily a good one, but it definitely was one. Um, I have to say, Fortunately, like my dad really didn't keep any, you know, alcohol. He, he drinks more in the summer just because it's warm out. So in, in, you know, February, March, April, there's no real, there's no alcohol there. And fortunately also went with him, you know, I think raising me the right way and me following with the right people, the right friends. Um, there was never any like illegal drugs. I was very blessed in that respect. Like, one thing I've learned Tim, in, in my life is like, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself the most. I, I live by that. And I, I tell my, my players that, my students that, you know, as a coach. So I said, choose your, your, your five people wisely. So I was blessed that those five people at that point in time happened to be my mom, my dad, my brother, Sonny, my dog. And then, you know, I, you know, like a friend here or there who um, really helped me through the transition period but they were people who didn't use drugs themselves, weren't out, you know, weren't into alcohol. So I was very blessed to not have that, um, you know, to, to be able to use that because I can understand how I, how I probably would have, you know, I probably would have considered that because of, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to, um, to uh, go, you know, feel the way I did. And I'm like, well, if this helps me escape, I might consider that. So I can certainly understand why someone would do that. Yep. That's what happened to me. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any children? No, I don't, but I, I, I have a niece. Um, and I consider like my soccer players like nieces cause I coach girls soccer. So as far as biological, no, but I, I do have a lot of, let's say, you know, students or, or athletes, um, and, and a niece, obviously, like a biological niece that um, I love, like, you know, 
in that respect. Like I really care for, and I want to see them do well in, in life. Well, in that role as kind of like a father-like figure, how, how would you characterize yourself? Are you easy, tough, lose your cool, yell and scream, show emotions and love? I'm more of the more laid back. I'm more the laid back one. I'm more the one now. Now I will say this, like if it's on the soccer field and one of my players is getting hurt or the referee's not protecting them, well, then the protective uncle comes out, put it that way. Like, um, you know, like that, but that's it. I'm not yelling at the kid. I'm yelling at the person who's supposed to protect the kid because they're not doing their job. That's different. But as far as the kid themselves, I'm usually the one who will talk to them, um, you know, and just, hey, what's going on? You're not being yourself, you know, and, and a lot of them, again, know my story. So it's not like they're going to tell me something that I'm going to, like, that's going to blindside me. They, yeah. they already know like how I have felt. So I'm usually the easygoing one and I'm, you know, like to talk to them one-on-one -on -one or even as a group or just like to, um, even when I'm coaching, I rarely yell. I, I mean, if, and or, like the only, you know, it'd be like my goalkeeper voice comes out. I was a goalie in soccer, Tim. So if it's to, to tell the defense to clear the ball, well, then I might say it loud enough, but I'm not yelling at the kid. That's more just instruction, like, you know, to clear, 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 something like that. Yeah. But, yeah. So I'm, I'm more laid And I like to think of myself as one who hopefully they feel that they feel comfortable enough speaking with. Like I tell my niece, I said, I'm, am I your uncle, the fun uncle? And she says, Oh yeah. Yeah. So she calls me the, the funkle because you know, we have, a, she's 14 and, and great kid love her to death. My gosh. Like, so for her, like I can be goofy around her and she knows this is just Jimmy being Jimmy. That's who I am. Like, that's how I, you know, like she loves the TV show, The Office. We bonded over The Office. Like we, you know, I have a, what's a Peacock premium here and we, I can't wait to watch like binge watch with her just so we can laugh together. You know, that's great. That's great. Well, with all, tell us what, what you've learned from all your experiences so far. Was there one particular thing that you can put your thumb on? Like as far as like just what I like in general, like what I've learned, you said, Tim? Yeah, whether it's growing up, whether it's through your depression, whether it was getting out of that depression, teaching, coaching. I would say that's a very good question, Tim. Um, I mean, some of it would deal with just with, with getting out of the depression. I would say don't be too hard on yourself because getting out of it, you don't just snap out of it. You don't just... Um, you don't just go from zero to 60 and then all of a sudden, oh, I'm back to normal. I mean, you're going to go from zero to 15, back to five, maybe to zero again, back, you know, it's, so it takes time. So take, be easy on yourself, you know, and, um, but at the same time, really perspective, perspective on life, perspective on what's really important, perspective on you know, like we were talking before the show, Tim, like first world problems and third world problems. You know, if it's a first world problem, like maybe electricity's out. It's like, well, at least I have electricity that can be out, you know, and from my service trips in, in third world countries, um, it, it's for them, if the electricity's out, they might turn on a candle and look at that as an opportunity to, to talk to their family, to pray, to do something else. So it's kind of like here, we don't get electricity. Well, I can't, Play my xbox all right well that's too bad so sad but but you know what there i, I there's a, 
we're going to light a candle and we're just going to meditate or we're just going to sit here and talk as a family. You know, so it's really that another thing is perspective, like just seeing truly what is important. That's great. And I think you're, you're really healthy. And I'm going to go back on what you said. I, I think Pennsylvania does have an influence on people. You know, when we lived there uh, as a family, these are some of the nicest people in the world that I've met. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's something to be said about that. And like you said, there are a lot of uh, Eastern European or Italian, whomever it was, yeah. it, 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 they brought over that flavor. And, and yeah. you know, that sticks with you. So. Oh, for uh, sure. All right, last question. Personally, how would you describe masculinity? Masculinity for me would be really, Tim, a person who, if they're wrong, or if they are someone who is in need of help, who is willing to apologize, or is willing to get help, who's willing to not, you know, the, the old saying to man up per se. And I think there's a difference in my perspective of manning up in masculinity, because my manning up would be to get help. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to, as much as I am not a Dallas Cowboy fan, I'm going to say something about Dak Prescott. I'm, I, you know, you, your listeners, so during the season, he talked about his mental health, how, you know, he had suffered from depression, from, you know, anxiety. And then um, Skip Bayless had called him out on it. And if I wish I could have spoken to Skip in person, but I'll leave what I would say to him, you know, on the side. But I would say, like, I thought Dak was very professional and he personified what masculinity was to me in what is perceived as the most masculine of sports, you know, like, and, and if you notice it opened up a door to speak with Hayden Hurst for the Atlanta Falcons who also suffered from. So I loved seeing that. And, and I'm, as an Eagles fan, I'm a big Brian Dawkins fan, you know, and, and Brian Dawkins, who's a hall of famer, he was in the hall of fame because of his, his talent and ability on the field. Well, and I have him mentioned in my dissertation in my acknowledgments, Brian Dawkins. The reason being not for his ability on the field, but for the fact that when he was done with playing, he has used his platform to speak out about his mental health. He suffered from anxiety, from depression. He had suicidal thoughts. And for him, like he, you know, he gives glory to God. He's very religious. And I like love the guy like my on my my list is to meet brian dawkins one of my th that i want to do in life tim is to meet brian dawkins because just of the i see what he is like and what he has done post you know career and i think guys who are playing now can kind of look at that and say here's a hall of famer and he's talking about mental health he's talking about some of these thoughts that we have and you unfortunately see in, in football and in other sports you know, people who will die by suicide. And, it, and it's, you know, I think, is it that they, the masculinity that is the old school masculinity is, is kind of taking over? So we, we don't know, but I have a lot of respect for those particular people who are willing to speak, including yourself. Obviously, like you're, you're being very transparent about your story and that, you know, it's only going to help others. Yeah, and, and you know, thank God, Athletes are starting to come out yeah. and talk about this. Kevin Love, yeah. the Cleveland Cavaliers, you know, he had a panic attack on the floor, in the locker room. 
his players were upset that he left the game. Yeah. And then after the game, he explained what he was going through. And they fully understood to the point where three other guys raised their hands and said, look, where do I get help? I go through the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and this, is, this is my point about masculinity. My definition is a three-sided triangle. One side I label Clint for Clint Eastwood, who's the tough guy, mm-hmm. the guy who's strong. He can lift the piano down the stairs. But also he's tough in the sense that he knows that he has to have a difficult conversation with somebody, whether it's a student, his child, his, his family, whoever it is. And he knows that that conversation and the truth has to come out. And it might not go down, you know, very easily to the other person, but he knows it's essential that that has to happen. The other side of the triangle I call curly for curly and the three stooges that men need to have a sense of humor. I mean, life is not so serious. You know, you talked about you and your niece bonding on the office, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of giggles going on there. And that's, that's so essential. Life is not so serious. Life is to enjoy and have fun. And thirdly, uh, on the third side of the triangle, Gandhi. And that is to say that a man should have some type of spiritual connection, whatever his choice is, whatever, however he wants to do that, something that is going to ground him, something that he can connect with on a spiritual level. And, and if a guy has all three of those characteristics, I think he's a masculine guy. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's so, you know, guys, you know, the media has played its role in this, uh, in showing that guy, you know, with the big car and the best clothes and the best women and the best booze. And, you know, he's just the, the greatest thing since sliced bread in his mind. Mm-hmm. And that's oftentimes where the ego trips men up is, you know, it's not always about them. You know, men have to realize they have to create that safe space for a woman in their personal life or in their workplace. Mm -hmm. A woman to be herself, make her contribution and not for fear that she's going to be labeled anything or uh, she's not going to be as highly regarded as a guy and you know it takes strength for a man and understanding for a man to create that environment and still feel safe and not you know sell out to to his his female partner or employee and allow her to do what she wants to do and you know in business Productivity is decreased if, if a woman is not allowed to give her contribution. You know, the good old boys say, oh, well, yeah, that's a good idea, but you're a woman. You know, and then the woman sits in the back of the room doodling on her, on her notepaper, not giving her best, or she has to consider whether she should go to HR or not, whether she'll be 
let go or she'll get some support or she can go look, look for another company where the, there is a healthy environment and men and women are working together in tune and in concert and they're maximizing their productivity and having fun and nobody's thinking about gender roles and, and race roles and all that. So it's really important thing in a lot of different ways. And I was just glad to hear you talk about your depression and how, you know, you, you really listened to your friend and then you immediately reached out to someone, you know, who could help you. And that's, that's the key is I'm, I'm trying to talk to the man who is afraid to ask for help, which unfortunately is, is millions and mi hundreds of millions of men yeah. who are, have mental health issues or depression and, and they won't ask for help because they think they'll be pigeonholed as, as a feminized man or not a real man, however you want to describe it. And it takes more courage to ask for help than, oh, yeah. than to sit under the covers and wait for the, the thing to blow over, which it's not. It's going to go into alcoholism or drugs or <clears throat> whatever violence, whatever the, you know, the outcome is. So, you know, taking that mental health uh, physical checkup every year is it's really important. And I'm glad that you were able to share your time with us and oh, thank you. you've really demonstrated courage and bravery and giving you. your community. So, I appreciate that. Any final thoughts before we go? Um, well, really, I said this the other day to someone, I said, well, you might as well not take yourself too seriously because no one gets out of here alive. <laughs> and I said, really like, like we we're talking about the office about find a TV show that makes you laugh. I mean, I don't care what show it is, but make, like, I could watch, there's a show out here called Impractical Jokers, Tim, and when I was going through my doctoral studies, from about 10, you know, maybe 9 to 11 o'clock, religiously, there's these four best friends who just pull pranks on each other, and Tim, there's times I'd be watching it, and my stomach would hurt of laughter. I'd be bawling, crying of laughter. I mean, they're included in my dissertation acknowledgments, just because of the effect they had because it's such a serious time with the, with, you know, the, uh, the dissertation and the doctoral studies, but in life itself, it's okay to laugh. And in fact, laughter causes that endorphin, right, like that positive endorphin that like of exercise, like, so that running endorphin is, is very similar, if not the same. So it might help just to get you a little bit off your feet and maybe just walk out that door and just go for a walk. So find that show. Like when I was a young kid, there was a show called Alf. And I will tell you what, Tim, I used to watch Alf and I love that show, that, you know, um, but Practical Jokers, uh, The Office, those are shows for me that I could watch religiously. The Goldbergs, it's one based out of you know, Pennsylvania. But find your show or your shows that make you laugh and, and watch them like, you know, or, or a comedy, a movie that's on that makes you laugh and, and what, because again, like, laughter they say laughter is the greatest medicine so you know that and 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 even find music that you enjoy that kind of can give you an escape you know and that that music has been huge for me too and and you know so little things like that that you can kind of get away from the world for a little bit and just just laugh or just listen and not have to worry about anything else you know so yeah 
It's very healthy. You're at, you're, no. you're spot on. Thank so. you. And, and, and hug your pets. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward, Jim, to continuing our dialogue so that we can help each other and help others. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Tim. And thank you to listeners. And listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts, including the Mental Health News Radio Network and HealthyLife.net. And keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a book about relationships, depression, suicide, and how toxic masculinity affects relationships between men and women. I also do public speaking, so go through my website, TimPrass.com, and I'll be glad to work with you. And don't forget to have some fun today.